Oborn and Heller on Cricket, brought to you by the Chiswick Calendar. Hello from me, Richard Heller, in a very sunny southeast London. Apologies from Peter, who's um, unable to be with us. Very grateful that our friend um, Roger Alton is joining us in his place. Roger is a sports columnist of The Spectator and a great cricket enthusiast. Morning, Roger here and looking forward to the cricket tonight and the tennis tomorrow morning, actually. Huge pleasure for both of us to um, welcome our guest today. Mickey Stewart was um, batsman and captain of Surrey and one of the best close fielders in the world. He had a short, possibly too short, test career for England. He became Surrey's cricket manager in 1979, then to 1986, went on to become England's first cricket manager, 1986 to 1992, and then became director of uh, coaching and excellence for English cricket for another five years, 92 to 97. Uh, Mickey, great stock of memories from your playing career and afterwards to talk about. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. I hope my memory works at my age. <laughs> <laughs> Let's deal with something topical first. Mickey, I don't know how much you watched of the um, uh, recent Ashes series. I just wondered if you'd found yourself using Fred Truman's phrase, regular phrase, I don't know what's going off out there. <laughs> and um, did you ever imagine that what you, might, what you might have done differently if you were England's cricket manager all over again? Well, I think it. Um, I think it was. Uh, it was all that happened before, uh, and also our our game. I mean, you had the situation that you go back years, and how the huge emphasis there has been on the restricted over game, starting with the the Gillette Cup, and then whittling down the overs to the John Player League the 40 over and then came the 2020 and now we've got 100 100 and when you compare that with the traditional game that had gone on for decade after decade after the decade for hundreds of years i won't say it doesn't surprise me not to the degree that it does but i had a certain amount of sympathy and as much as in preparing going back to the, the traditional game when you went to australia that was nothing to do with as a batsman with batting at Bradford or the Oval or Swansea or whatever where the conditions because of our climate being totally different in Australia um, you, you went from one condition where you had to apply a certain technique to another one to another one and what you never and hardly ever got was the preparation to prepare yourself for playing the ball consistently above waist high and when you did when you you got that worked out then there was the sideways movement and i should think our batting performance revolved around the failure to know what to leave and what to play at and if the number that got caught a slip or at the wicket which is that's what the pace bowl was looking to do they were they were the majority of dismissals i would i would, I would think so I had sympathy on that, plus the fact of the crowded international program that has been put together 
and trying to continue the domestic program and introducing 100 in addition to 2020 to suddenly go and play in a totally different environment as they did. And I haven't mentioned COVID where they're in, in bubbles or what have you. I just couldn't imagine it. Um, so I had sympathy on that score, but I just believe that what happened was to the nth degree what happened. Um, but it was, well, in my book, I mean, inevitable. I, I remember the first 40 over game that Surrey played was against Worcester at the Oval. And in that side was Peter Richardson, Tom Graveney, Basil D'Oliveira, um, a really top side. And at the end, and we batted first, and we got 137, I think it was. <laughs> and we won the game in spite of my cocking up the bowling and having <laughs> a bowl Eunice Ahmed for one over. <laughs> we won the game by something like uh, five runs or four runs. And at the end of it, chalking up at a drink after the game, Tom Graveney. So if you watch this, Mickey, if this continues year by year, you'll see the technique of batting go down and down and down. And that was 1968. <laughs> of course, I mean, Mickey, I mean, the Aussies play limited over cricket as well. So uh, it, 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 is there something else? I mean, uh, is it just as you, I think you're suggesting there, a lack of preparation in, in, in Australian conditions that affected England? But of course, because the Aussies... The Aussies have played a lot of white ball cricket. Yes, they do. But how? Do, what are they introduced to, to in when they're fifteen? Yeah, 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 yeah. Sure. Their 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 grade cricket state by state with every <clears throat> um, state club, a local authority. They have one um, under fifteen, under seventeen, and four adult sides. Yeah. And they, one side bats one Saturday. And the other side bats the next Saturday. That's in grades one, two, three, four. Yeah. And when some years ago, now there was there was um, a review. Of course, it was probably something like two two thousand and seven or whatever it was when we had been done five nil in Australia, and the questionnaire went round to be filled in by every cricketer in the country, club by club by club. In every in every county, and the what the question was: What sort of cricket would you most like to play on a Saturday? And back came the answer: Majority by a, a street, forty over cricket. A similar thing was put out to uh, the players in Australia. I'm not saying it's the same time. And back came the answer: As it is now, I want to learn to bat and bowl all day. Yeah, yeah. In um, Pakistan, India, okay, as you may know, the um, top school matches are often played over two innings to a finish, as if they were test matches. And they take as many afternoons as they need. That's still yeah. happening. Yeah. Mm. What was interesting, the one over here, I think, they said, and please give a reason why, if you're able. And there were many that said, I can take my wife shopping on a Saturday morning. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Quite an important change since um, the early days of cricket, well, it's wasn't huge. it? Yeah, mm. other things too. Can I ask one other thing? It was the collapses that surprised me. So on the last morning of the Hobart Test, uh, the Sunday our time, you felt that England had a very good chance. They were seventy-six for none odd, I think. 
and um, you know, chasing 280 odd. And, and then it just fell apart. It just fell apart in 40 odd runs. And it was sort of an odd, is that a mental thing or is it simply, I mean, obviously you've got all this sort of COVID and lack of pre preparation and, and, and the conditions and so on. So Hobart's doesn't seem that dissimilar from, you know, Cardiff. It just collapses and so on. <laughs> I think you're right there. But it, it's like anything else. When you, when you take guard, and the initial deliveries that you receive, it's so important that you work out what you're going to play at and what you're not. Yeah. And um, and by then, of course, you know what confidence is in anything. Um, confidence was obviously at a great low, and um, yes. that was the result of it. Yeah. Yeah. Mickey, you were a very uh, you were a long-serving and well-organised opening batsman, as indeed. Even more so as your son Alec later on. Why do you think England has struggled so much in recent years to find opening batsmen? It seems to me we were very good at uh, English cricket was very good at producing openers, but we haven't had a reliable pair, have we, since Cook and Strauss? Where where have they all gone? <laughs> all I can say is that the the ability by the players and and, and they are um, good players at striking a cricket ball. And what some of the stripes and the number of times they hit it up to Rose Z um, in the restricted over games is absolutely incredible. It's got better and better and better. But what is a problem is when the ball goes sideways, mm. whether it's swung, whether it's seamed, or whether it's spun. And there's not too much of that these days. And then it's a totally different game. And you have to play accordingly. And if you don't, if you're not used to playing that and suddenly meet something, I mean, Nathan Lyon, I don't think he's the biggest spinner of the ball, but he's got a tremendous record, got 400 wickets, and, um, and has played his part in an outstanding, let's face it, they had an outstanding attack, and um, two of them were injured, or mm -hmm. three at one time, I think. Yeah. And, um, and they have an outstanding attack because not only do they have the ability to put the ball where it should be, where it should land when they bowl it, but they're strong, fit, and everything. And that is, um, and they hit the wicket hard. Mm. I mean, when you're, you know, we, we talk about collapses just now. I mean, was there a, a, a similar feeling in Australia when um, when um, Brody bowled out? Brought them out for 82 or whatever it was. Mm. Brent Bridge, was it? And also, it was 60, wasn't it? Yeah, it was even less than 82. Well, they weren't remember. used yeah. to playing the ball so that, the way that it went then, you see. Yeah, yeah. Mm. It certainly came back from that, then. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, certainly. Yeah. Okay, I'd like to now go back um, to your early life and career, um, as it particularly is, it was narrated in the book you did with Stephen Chalk. I want to pick out a lot of things that to my mind, represent a completely different world of cricket that some of our younger and even not so young listeners would just find completely unfamiliar. And let's kind of ask, you know, where have they gone and will we ever get them back again? One thing that I pick out from the book is um, a very simple thing. The fact that in your childhood, children played cricket all day outdoors. Mm. Um, and you still see this um, on the Indian subcontinent, but... You don't see it now, certainly not in English cities, do you? Certainly not in London. No, well, um, <laughs> when the seasons when the seasons overlapped a bit, 
I probably wouldn't have been outdoors if we'd had a television. Yeah. Arsenal or Chelsea or whoever it may be would have been on would have been on television. I'd, I'd have been watching them, and mm. that's what happens now, I suppose. Mm. So, so, so you think that's really been lost for good? That sort of um, outdoor spirit since since television. Well, no, there is so much more organised of yeah. youngsters, as you're saying. The mm. organisation now of academies left, right, and centre. Um, it, it, it's incredible, really, and it um, it concerns me on that score. The number of, I mean, we've got thousands and thousands of kids up and down the country playing cricket up to the age of fifteen. Yep. And then they they go on to other things. They they say, but what concerns me as well, and it's had publicity in the last week or so, is that the cost to the parents of providing a, the clothing, the equipment, the the cost of being coached. If you're chosen for a, uh, a county age group squad, be it from under whatever it may be, under nines, under eights, under tens, then that is a further cost. And um, I mean, I have a, a grandson who plays, 14, he was just 14 now, and it's been... So it's about £2,000 a year plus mm. um, for, for the kid to play, which is, um, I mean, <laughs> if I tell you, I look, looked at um, the, the, of the 1965 Wisdom, and there was, a, there was a, an advertisement in there for um, Alf Gover's Cricket School, along with Andy Sandham at one point, mm. the only indoor school. <laughs> mm. In this part of the world, it was, and for a half-hour lesson, cost seventy-five p. Mm. For an hour's lesson today, not at that school, but on average, it's fifty pounds. Mm. Mm. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You tell me, huge. Yep. Mind you, I only had half an hour coaching in my whole time as a professional, so. <laughs> Alf Gover's Cricket School, which is not far from me, has gone, of course. I mean, went years and years and years ago. Oh, yes, ago. it did, yeah. <laughs> it's a protected, the his house was a protected house. Was it? Yeah, that couldn't get knocked down. <laughs> That's excellent. It used to be lit by gaslighting, I remember. I played there. I had a few nets there occasionally. I never got coached there, but uh, my team used to have nets there occasionally. And um, it was lit by gaslighting, and I swear it made the ball swing better. <laughs> But I think these things that you were talking about, Mickey, raised are about making, getting young people to be involved, so and getting sort of parents involved so they feel part of it, so they feel they don't have to spend all this money, and then their child, son or daughter doesn't then travel, you know, for, for a couple of hours to spend all the time on the boundary and then get no runs, and so to, to make get more people involved. But I think there's a growing sort of sense that this now has to happen in club cricket. It can't just be left to um, sort of ramble on in the same way, because as you say, the costs and the time and a difficult, different sort of world that we live in. So with a bit of luck, it'll start changing. I mean, the traditional game and the time that it takes, and then as you go up the scale, it takes longer and longer. That is precious little to do with the, well, I believe, with the, the, the personality of the average person today who wants everything in an instant. And therefore, somebody who attends the first day of a, of a test match of five days 
Mm. And I'm sure you introduce one or two people um, to their match for the first time. And after five days, there's no result. The match is a draw. They don't understand it. Well, that was the game that was introduced for decade after decade. It was the game that you respected and appealed. Yeah. And in my case, that's what I wanted to do. Yeah. Another thing that's unknown to the present generation, later generations, national service cricket. Um, you played quite a lot in uh, in uh, cricket, didn't you? In in national service. I've seen quite a lot of um, accounts, not just yours, that say it was a rather good experience, national service. If you were a cricketer, you spent a lot of, seemed to spend a lot of time actually playing cricket on pretty good pitches. Was the national service a good opportunity for, um, for players to come through into the professional game that's now been lost? Um, I wouldn't say I wouldn't say that the cricket was an, um, as an advantage. It certainly was. With certain individuals, you're absolutely right. But generally, my thought, um, well, the way life is today, and every other day there's some little kid being knifed in South London or wherever it may be, the general discipline that um, is rammed home to you when you attend your first parade as a national serviceman, as was, was vital to so many, many people. When I did my national service, 48 hours before, I had just scored the winning goal <laughs> as captain of Allings against the big rivals Brentwood. And after showering, I'll say, probably swaggered across the quad and the youngsters look, looking up to me and saying, well played, etc. And 48 hours later, I jumped out of this army vehicle that had picked me up at Farnborough Station in Hampshire. And then had to get all my kit and everything was on the bed. And suddenly, at the back of me, as I was taking out of my holdall a pair of still damp football boots, <laughs> a voice said, What have you got there, Sapper? <laughs> <laughs> and I said, Football boots. And he said, Football boots, mm, Sergeant, are you, Sapper? What are they? Football boots, Sergeant. Let me tell you this, son. When I get you to Korea, I want you to stick that bloody great bayonet in and not kick in the death. And that was inside 24 hours of being a hero. Yeah. Yeah, I must have concentrated a lot of minds that first experience. Yeah. Sounds a good life, though. Yeah. Well, I tell you what, it saved, there were on the, I mean, I had a very wide experience of a cross section of people that I met growing up and by the time I was 18. But there were four Geordies in the, um, what they were called, spiders in the same hut. And I, although I made a great cross-section of people, I didn't have a clue what they were saying. <laughs> Three of them were part-time pro footballers as well who come down. And, and we, uh, we became great friends and two of them signed on as regular soldiers and had a, a, an outstanding military career. And, um, and three of them said, if we hadn't done national service in the life that we had, there's no doubt we'd have finished up in prison, serving yeah. time. And yeah. this has saved us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. fascinating. Mickey, um, okay. well, while we're on to, on to football, another thing that's sort of vanished is the idea that you could be a footballer and a cricketer in the same year. There were lots of there were footballers, uh, there were cricketers who had 
professional football careers as well uh, as you did. You, you were a professional, you're an amateur international, and then you became a professional for Charlton Athletic. And uh, obviously, that's impossible for both sports today, isn't it? Well, both both games are, are so much more demanding, mm. and there's a, there's a there's a much bigger overlap of season. I mean, when I was at Surrey, as I have to cut, I think whether it was a manager or player, that this was this player, and um, Geoffrey Howard was the secretary, having come down from Lancashire. We had injuries. And he um, made contact with Jimmy Coombs, um, mm. who uh, originally with Lancashire, and he had a couple of seasons with us or so. Um, and he was um, an outstanding goalkeeper with three or four major clubs. Yes. Um, mm. example. But when, when arranging it all and being heavily involved, he was with Carlisle. And the manager of Carlisle was a guy called Alan Ashman, who also played minor county cricket with Creeper. And um, then he said, uh, the dates that um, I wanted him to be with us um, were, I'm afraid, too much for him. And I said, well, I, he said, there's no way I can afford to lose my goalkeeper for that number of times in preparation. And he's got to be here. Otherwise, <laughs> I'll be losing my job. <laughs> and that was it. Yeah. There wasn't nearly, in the 50s, was there such a gap between footballers' earnings and cricketers' earnings, was there? There was a a cap on maximum wage, wasn't there, on footballers' earnings. Can you remember roughly um, how your earnings compared as a cricketer and as a footballer in that period, Mickey? I can remember it very well. I can remember my first pay packet. I say pay packet, notice of wages. Mm. I think it was in the book, wasn't it, I believe. And... um, it was the second year of national service, and um, I had heard nothing from Surrey at all, having played all the young amateur games from the age of, well, I was still 15, and um, right up to 17 stroke 18. They hadn't said a thing to me as far as joining um, or whatever. And um, I then did well. Uh, hundred and eight innings in a particular game involving a former Kent uh, captain. And um, he said, oh, where do you live? So Gilliam, I think he's playing for the Royal Engineers again. I said, um, well, it's in between Hernhill, um, Brixton and Campbell Green. He said, that's Kent, isn't it? I said, no. <laughs> anyway, he said, what have Surrey said to you? And I said, nothing. If they don't want you, would you be interested in playing for Kent? And I said, well, I did it, obviously. And the very next week, Ryan Caster, the secretary of Surrey, comes through the door of the dressing room as I'm putting on the pads to I think it was Army and Rap, I think it was the game. Totally ignoring the um, the notice saying only admittance allowed the permission of the captain, I'll say and came over and said, um, oh, I brought you a top. What's this about you're wanting to play for Kent? I said, I don't. I want to play for Surrey. He said, well, why didn't you tell me that? <laughs> I said, well, I thought it was up to you to tell me whether I was good enough. He said, I brought along your contract. <laughs> and this was the end, the second half of one season. We don't start for the next. And um, I said, oh, um, well, I would like to show it to my father first. And he... Um, he replied, well, don't take too long. Bear in mind, it, 
months and months before I'm going to be at the Oval. <laughs> and um, the <laughs> so as I as he gave it to me, I saw there was six pounds a week was on it. And I've been told by Ken Barrington, who I got to know a bit, that if you play first class cricket during your national service, you get eight pounds a week. <laughs> and I said, excuse me, Mr. Caster, shouldn't I um Shouldn't that be eight pounds a week? He looked at it and said, "I hope we're not signing a Barrett lawyer." <laughs> <laughs> that was my introduction to. <laughs> Did you get your eight quid? Did you get your eight quid? Yes. Oh, good. Yeah, that was and, and you also got um, a pound for appearing in the second team, and ten shillings, an extra ten shillings, fifty p if you won it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, funny you, you did say, Richard, that, that I was talking to David Sidnam on the phone. If you remember, yes, that first um, bowler, left yeah. arm opening mm. bowler, top mm. bowler, wasn't yep. the most athletic person and suffered with injuries. Um, but he was a fine bowler and worked like crazy in his game as he did. He finished up the qualified chirurgist, or they got a posher name than that these days, haven't they? And um. And then was, was, was boss of the local authority national health area. Okay. And he, he suddenly, it would be about three or four weeks ago, I suppose, speaking to him, and he, something was in the paper about somebody's sound. Oh, I think it was um, the chief executive of ECB, Tom Harrison's salary was in the paper or so. And he, so he got on that subject. So I said, so before you go on moaning, I said, what was the most you earned? As a, an established first team player with your county cap, etc., he said, "I think one year I earned one thousand three hundred pounds." And I said, "Well, there are about half a dozen at the Oval now who are are on more than a hundred thousand pounds." Just what he said. So there, things have changed. Mm, yeah. Um, the next thing I want to talk about, Mickey, is amateur professional divide. Um, oh dear. Yeah. Whoops. Uh, why you say oh dear? <laughs> but you um, sort of chose the professional route when a lot of people thought, didn't they, in your early career, that you had the option of playing as an amateur or going down the amateur sort of traditional amateur route. You'd been to public school. You could have gone to university. You're, I think you were offered a job, which would have allowed you time for cricket. Um, what made you? Decided to be go down the professional route in the fifties uh, rather than take that amateur route. Well, I was. I, it applies to football more so in, in a way. But I was brought up that whatever you do um, in life, be it your sport or whatever you finish up doing, this is from my father that you never cheat. And my father was in the racing game. Mm. Um, there, was, there were no bookmakers on the streets that there are now, um, but you could have a, an account uh, with, with a bookmaker that could be done on the telephone. And um, he, and in being in the world of racing, um, there are a great cross section of people there. Mm. Some, some the very best, and some of the very worst. And um, whatever you did. Um, it had to be straight and honest, otherwise you were in the problem. And my father, um, after being in the First World War, his first job after that was, I think, the Wembley Exhibition, um, where he he sold pens. Mm. 
what the Great Wembley Exhibition. 1924. And then Greyhound Racing started in the London area and various stadiums were, were to accommodate that. And he was then the youngest tic-tac, mm. if, you, if you're aware yeah. that is, with the old. Yeah. And, um, and the tic-tac did all the settling round the, the track where they laid off bets to um, other, other bookmakers standing up at the Greyhound Racing. And, um, well, in those days, it would have been thousands, but hundreds of pounds changed hands without one signature one way or t'other, and if um, anybody was a bit out of order, then not only did they get reprimanded, but they, some of them might have had, the, had their life in danger. Mm. And anyway, so that was how I was brought up as far as sport was concerned. My parents wanted me to go to um, university, and, uh, and I had the op opportunity um, that would have been another three years or so. I wasn't thinking of going there to play cricket because of you getting a degree, obviously. And um, I knew cricket was going to be involved as well. And uh, I wanted to go the professional route. And when there was the opportunity, um, which I've described a bit how I joined Surrey, um, that was it. But what you're alluding to more is more, is more the football. Like the amateur in cricket um, was employed with a view to his playing cricket. So many, so many of them. Mm. I mean, the, who I was at school with, <laughs> John Preplove. Does that mm. name mean anything? Yes, played for, played Kent, for Kent. Didn't he? Well, he yeah. was a fine, not only cricket, a fine footballer as well. Sadly, he's with us no longer. And he was um, assistant secretary at Kent. And, um, and uh, Derek Upton, who also um, said, um, died some months ago, he said, and I said, what, what, so what happened down there then? He said, well, he, he was the assistant secretary for two years, and in that time, he never even knew where the office was. <laughs> and um, so he went down, down that route, but worse was, was football. And, um, the pro and amateur situation and how the people that ran football being aware um, how many um, shamateurs in the game um, was absolutely incredible and then just ignored it. It went on and on and on. And it's, it's in the book as well. Like, I got picked to play for England against France. I'm coming back from a, a tour to the West Indies with Jim Swanson. Football-wise, when it, when it continued, got picked in the Olympic squad for the Melbourne 1956 Olympic Games and then had this phone call from, I don't know if it was Sir Stanley Ralph, then Stanley Ralph, Secretary of Football Association, um, saying that the Olympic Committee um, have, have not allowed me to take part in the Olympic Games because I'm a professional in another sport. Dreadful. I mean... The, the the Olympic Committee was as terrible then as it is now, uh, Mickey. That's a yeah. that's an appalling thing. Well, I've never, but but it, all these things were allowed over here. I mean, the Amateur Cup was one was played at Wembley in front of nearly a hundred thousand when the ca printing casuals were there, eighty-seven thousand. And um, if the casuals are one, it was probably the first time 
that the cup, the cup had been won for ages by a truly amateur cup. Mm. And that was allowed to go on and on and on. Yeah. yeah. Until 1963. Mm. Shamateurism, it was called, wasn't it? Yeah. Mm. yeah. You can see that I'm still emotionally not happy about it. <laughs> yeah, it leaves a long legacy, obviously. Yeah. But the level of rewards now, Mickey, for sportsmen, I mean, you must be, I mean, you must be pleased now that the, the, I mean, obviously the scale is completely different, but I mean, to be a professional sportsman now is a very good career, isn't it now? And obviously more in football. Well, from but, a financial point of view, yeah. Huge yeah. Yes, yes, and good luck to them. But some of the figures are incredible. <laughs> Yeah, it is amazing. Can I ask you about the Oval and, and why it's such a sort of successful institution and, and why people who love, like Surrey, really love Surrey and they love people like you, for example. And um, what is it about the Oval that's so sort of special and Surrey more than Lord? Well, I think <laughs> it's probably something to do like a little bit with, with the amateur progress, I suppose, I don't know. Um, but... Uh, it has always been run, by and large, as a members' club. Mm. And if you looked at the composition of the, the various committees there, there was always a big representation uh, or a good representation of cricketers, of past cricketers. And um, that was mixed in with um, businessmen, etc., etc. But everything was em was pointed towards the cricket, mm. and because that was so, when was it in the the sixties? The club, to use a racing term, was skinned, and because there had been precious little attention paid to how you attracted in revenue other than gate money, mm. and for years before the war and what have you. I was told that the, the income and the running of the club revolved around um, a 10,000 gate on a Saturday start, and that wasn't every Saturday or even every other Saturday. And the membership income, other than that, there was nothing. Yeah. Nothing came from the centre. I mean, MCC ran the game there and the international cricket, and nothing came from there. And then, so it was in, in problems. And yeah. The person who led led the escape route from that and sadly died at the end of November by the name of Bernie Coleman. I don't know yeah. if that name rings a bell with yeah. anybody. Is. Yes, yeah. he does. Well, he um, figures a lot in the tremendous, book. Tremendous. Yeah. Mm. Uh, and he um, and the likes of Derek Newton, um, Raman Summerow at the time, but led by Bernie, saved the club. And... Um, and he was the first uh, perimeter advertising sign when it was up there at the Oval. And um, Gubby Allen said, what's that sign up there when he comes to have a look at the match that was on at the moment? What's that? It's beginning to look like a Greyhound stadium. <laughs> and uh, he said, if it wasn't there, it would be a Greyhound stadium. <laughs> That's a very good reply. And yeah. he led the charge and, and, and saved Surrey along with the with the others, and then um, TCCB, as it was then, and he was chairman of the marketing then and then did the same with the National Gate. Um, I think he was very much involved in the first, um, arranging the first meeting between Sky TV and um, the board. Yeah. 
my view, Richard Thompson at Surrey at the moment is one of the best people in English cricket and should be running one of the people running English cricket, I think, but I doubt that'll happen. Well, I talked about the past then, but of the, of the last, I've never seen the club better run yeah. than it has been since Richard took over and, and also got Richard Gould as um, chief executive. And the people that they, the team that they put together have all been outstanding in their particular departments. And um, but all the time emphasising that um, it is a cricket club, it is a members cricket club, and cricket mm. will always come first. Mm. Um, mm. But at the same time, they have a huge amount on the, on the business side of the club. Yeah. I think as a member, you always feel very welcome at Surrey. It's a, it's a fantastic place. It's a, one, it's a great place to play, yeah. watch cricket and be, you know. Well, Richard, I'd be, be delighted to hear you say that. You know, no matter what, even the junior member or the most senior member, that is, that is what the, the policy is. Yeah. Mickey, I'd like to ask about um, something that's, also, again, unknown to um, modern generation, uncovered pitches. What what was it like to play on uncovered pitches? What do they do to your batting average, your bowling average, um, skills of the game generally? A lot of old stages would like to bring them back, wouldn't they? Well, I don't. <laughs> I mean, some of the the non-covering arrangements were hopeless, really, because once a ball was bowled, and that if it rained after that one ball being bowled. Until the umpire said there'll be no more play today, the wicket had to remain open, and the rain rained on it. Mm. Um, and I started there, which is in the um, first-class cricket in in, in '54. I got in. Um, that was the form, and you had to learn to play on the particular um, particular pitches that you met, and you could go, you could. In a, in a fortnight and four games, you could play in four different types of pitches. What you never met, I might say, was a pitch such as our lads in Australia have played on, <laughs> played on throughout the tour. You mean in terms of bounce? Yeah, and the first time I I, I met that was at um, was it fifty fifty six? Jim Swanton put a side together, um, top side of. England players and potential England players for a six-week tour to West Indies. I think it was all to do with, I think when Len, Len Hutton had been captain there and there had been a few problems that, and the mm. crowd had not reacted too well and he wanted to make up for that. Yeah, it was a sort of goodwill to it. Mm. And um, that was the first time I played on a surface where you could just hit through the line of the ball mm. regardless of length pretty well. So I'd already played them. It was at 56. So I'd, I'd played three years of first-class cricket in England and had not met batted on the surface as there was at Kensington Oval at Barbados. Mm. I, I made friends who have been introduced beforehand with Jim Laker, who, Jim Laker with Clyde Walker, who was playing against us. Mm. And I, we chatted a lot about how, how you could hit the ball on the up the first time I did it in the second game against Barbados, it was off Wes Hall actually, and um, I'd got went on my back foot and it was just just short just short of length and coming up and I timed it and it went through the cupboards for four and I turned around and said, "Is that on the up?" He said, "Yes, at your size you hit it on the up." 
At my size, I hit it on the drop. <laughs> Mickey, can I ask you a tiny thing? I propose, in fact, of the last Ashes talk. I mean, I imagine you would have had a few kind of late night um, drinking sessions or after the end of a tour with the opposition, um, but without the, um, the possibility of them being filmed. I mean, obviously, it's nice relaxing with the opposition and... There was a ridiculous sort of spat about that uh, booze up in uh, Hobart uh, with filmed by Graham Thorpe for reasons best known to himself. I just wonder what you thought about that. Well, I read about it in the, in, in the Telegraph. I yeah. don't understand it, um, <laughs> to be honest. Um, there's not much to say about it. I mean, it was always at the end of the series. Um, yeah. Because it's manager, 86, 87, the same <coughs> those years ago. Um, you always had a drink and stayed together for a while after the game, but that was normal playing hours then. In this case, it's a floodlit thing, and I think they didn't—they barely left the ground, did they? Barely, yeah. And then they went to the then they went to the, they went on to the hotel the hotel they shared. Yeah. And there yeah. were only about I don't know was it three or four from each side, or I don't. Yeah, know. about half a dozen altogether. All I can say is that when you're when you're winning. You can step over the line a bit. If you're coming second, you don't want to go anywhere near that line. I don't know. I yeah. don't understand it. Mickey, one you said at the very beginning, you were one of the best close fielders, well, in the world at the time in your playing career. But that's the thing that changed. A thing that's changed out of recognition, isn't it? Since cricket in the 1950s, when I used to watch cricket, there were a lot of cricketers out in the field who. Were, really pretty clearly unfit. You know, there are a lot of non-benders and non-divers, and you used to see two to, to third man um, absolutely regularly. But um, you were almost called out, weren't you, for your attitude to fielding, and particularly to diving in the field, which wasn't done at all in the 50s, was it? <laughs> no, well, <laughs> I don't know. I can't remember whether it was in the book or not, but I am um, fielding close most of the time, and a tremendous example was, was set by Stewie Surridge, who was captain for the, the five years, and we won it all five times he was captain. Um, and he always stood close, and he was a big, big guy, and et cetera, et cetera. But I can remember fielding um, an extra cover in, in a game in my early days. It would have been my first appearances there, and uh, the ball was hit three, four consecutive times to me at cover. An extra cover, and um, I had to dive to stop it. And Bernie Constable, who always fielded at cover point, was an outstanding cricket, brilliant. I learnt more of him than I should think anybody else. And he suddenly turned and he said, What are you doing? <laughs> and I said, What do you mean, what am I doing? I'm stopping the ball. He said, What's all this diving? And I said, well, to stop the ball. He said, look at your flannels. <laughs> and he, he, I said, of course, there was green all over. And in those days, if you grasped your flannels in one session, you had to put on a clean pair to start the next session. Mm. That was done. But you learned that you could wet it and put talcum powder on. <laughs> and, and, um, so it, and he said, I know how much it costs to have your flannels clean. I can remember it was three shillings and six have you? <laughs> it's even to this day. He said, I know how much you earn. You can't afford to die. 
Absolutely. Three shillings shillings and sixpence, that's 17.5p today, isn't it? (laughs) Just to translate for the modern generation. You set a a record that's only been equaled since in 1957, didn't you, Mickey? It's a close fielder. You caught seven batsmen in an innings, most of them at short leg, I think. That was in 1957 against Northamptonshire. Yeah, Yeah. the wicket they bowled brilliantly, but it was a short leg and gully, really. I didn't know I caught seven until somebody came in after we'd won the game and said it was a record at the time, yeah. Yeah, it's still, it's been equalled, but not um, overseas, I think, but not... Um, Tony Brown, who's another one there along with us, he equalled it, didn't he, some while later. Oh, yeah. Mm. But uh, did you ever, you've stood very close in, did you ever get injured in that position? <laughs> did, you take a, did you ever take a hit in that position? If I tell you that I didn't even wear a box. Good work. <laughs> and, and even to the extent that when Jim Swanton learned this, mm. the way Jim used to write, he actually put it in his piece. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I said, I, I, I did it at the end. But, um, at the end, but you know, certainly it can be compared to today. No, no shin pads, no, no helmet. Yeah. At the same time, people used not to sweep or play the slog sweep so, so much as um, as goes on now. I mean, an example of that was I old fielded square back pad for Jim Laker. I can't remember his name now. There was an Australian played for Lancashire for a long time. Forgotten his name. Well, that be Ken Greaves. Ken Greaves, it was. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Mm. And um, he he came in at Old Trafford the first time I I think it was played against Lancashire, and um, I was there. And he said, "Come out, they go square by the umpire." I said, "He hasn't taken guard yet, Jim." He said, "Go by the umpire. I'm, you're not, I'm not bowling. If you stand there, I'm not going to bowl." Mm. Because and so and that was his game. So it was a <clears throat> by comparison with today, the stroke wasn't played. Um, Anything like it is today, back then. Because if you if you played that shot and got out, you, you were up in front of the captain <laughs> to explain your poor shot. Yeah, yeah fascinating. Yeah. yeah. Of course, you didn't have much protection as a batsman either, did you? Um, compared to today, I mean, no helmets. I think gloves and pads that I that I remember as a kid were much much flimsier. Uh, was it like facing bowlers like you know Frank Tyson and Truman? Um, Peter Loder, you didn't wouldn't have faced him much. He was your Surrey colleague, Peter Loder. I know, of course, a lot of fear in those days. What was it like facing them um, on on uncovered pitches in the in the fifties with the protection you had? I mean, <laughs> no, no different. You, you you're aware of what they bowl, what their strengths are, and how much quicker. Well, Frank Tyson was probably the quickest bowler I played against, and. Um, all the time, you're not playing the person; you're playing the ball, and that's what the—that's what you play. You don't consider it's bowled by Frank Tyson or Frank mm. Truma or Peter Loader or whoever it may be. You just play the ball, and um, and that's it. And if you if you miss it, then there's another one coming down. If you're still there, if it hasn't got you out, mm. and, um, and that's mentally that's what I did anyway. Play the ball, right. Just wonder whether the same attitudes there mentally in in a lot of English batsmen today. They're just um, you know that attitude of sort of playing one ball at a time and and staying focused on the ball seems 
does seem to be weakening a little bit, and they don't seem to be quite as mentally. Sometimes some batters you see just don't seem to be as mentally focused as uh, as you might have been. Well, I don't know that that's true in the time that, that they spend on um, on preparing or actually playing. As I say, I, I mean, all the, all the best players, I think they're always good players. We've got good players. It's just the type of cricket that they are introduced to when they start their careers, they have to learn to divide one game different from another game, like a ball that... Now, if you're only playing one game, a good, a good example, really, John Edrich, who is a tremendous run scorer, absolutely tremendous. And um, when he started, he, um, with the angle, right arm over and going across him, he used to play a miss quite a bit. And, um, and then he worked at this and worked at that. And after his first trip to Australia, and I think and he worked a lot, I believe, with Colin Cowdery as well, and um, he came back and he was never playing better. And then when the 40-over game came in, and you had to, you can't afford to let balls go, you've got to let, try and run them down. To, he started nicking it again and playing, you see. And, um, and that was an example of um, how it can change you totally, um, having to move from one game to the other. One, one day... You'll be letting it go in a first-class match. The next one is a 2020, or and you've got to chase everything. Yeah. Now I'm not saying that you. It's impossible to learn. I'm not saying that at all. I'm saying it's more difficult on that score. So going in now, you would want because it'll take time, and I don't know whether it. If, if we continue with the same international program, which I think our international program is ridiculous. It's so crowded. Putting mm. in. The, all the things that happen in the domestic program over here. Um, well, it's crazy. And then you think of the other cricket competitions around the world, which pay thousands and thousands of pounds. Mm. It's a totally different game, and the player is is in a totally different position from the, the playing the traditional game. Um, as I've said before, it has existed for decade after decade. Yeah, and um, that's not there, so... Um, we have to find a way to keep this great game, you know, alive in all its forms, you know. It's, um, it's uh, quite important, I think. There's a very good documentary on um, Alan Stanford uh, called The Man Who Bought Cricket, which I, was on the other oh, day. I've seen, I, I, I've, I think I've seen... Is there more than one? There are three parts, it's three parts. Oh, I've only seen one of them. Have a look at the lot. It's really yeah, gripping. I will. Yeah, I you think, what were you playing at? Honestly, you know, what were they playing? Well, I, I, I can't. The, the one that I saw, and you think of the experienced business people that were there. Yeah. And, and, and the, also the fact that they were involved with such a traditional game. Mm. And not to, well, I don't find it. Yeah, it's quite. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Well, I could quote the phrase that we've started with. I don't know what's going off out there, isn't it? Yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Mickey, thank you so much for being with us. And, um, yeah, absolutely. And, and uh, it's been wonderful talking to you. And uh, at which it's goodbye for me, Richard Heller, in South East London, which is still very sunny. Yeah, thank you very much, Mickey. Pleasure. What a pleasure. Mm. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.